journey. I turned 50 this last week. Yep. If you were here last Sunday at the nine o'clock, I was trying to host, do my best, and suddenly I could look out there and I could see nobody is paying attention to me. And uh, Brian was sneaking up behind uh, with a birthday cake. And when no one was paying attention to me and people are starting to chuckle, everything in me wanted to like, like check my, like, am, what, like what is going on here? Uh, so if, if I'm a little bit jumpy today and I'm kind of doing a, a little bit of this, it's uh, because of last week. Uh, but also they did something that was very special to me. Uh, they did a little slideshow, kind of a, a little bit of a history of my life. Uh, when I saw the video, it kind of looked like a hair loss montage more than just the story of my life. Uh, but as a result of that slideshow, uh, there are some questions and comments that came to me pretty regularly throughout this week. One of the biggest questions that people ask me is, how much younger is your wife than you? And if someone's going to ask me that question, I'm just going to turn it back on them. How, young, how much younger do you think she is? I just want to put it in their court. There were people that would say, is she 10 years younger than you? I was like, come on, try two months younger than me. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I pulled off the greatest upset in dating history, and I'm so grateful to get to be her husband. Um, about the hair loss, um, I want to tell you something. Uh, I realized at age 50 that I didn't actually lose my hair. I figured out what happened is, at one point, my hair decided that it's going to go underground, and most recently, it's trying to tunnel its way out through my ears. <laughs> what is it getting old and hair growing out of your ears? I feel like I need a weed whacker. 50. We're in week number three of this series that we're calling Spent. And we're just asking the question, how do we spend our life, our time, our energy, our money? How do we spend those things in a way that doesn't just leave us feeling spent? We're talking about this during the Christmas season, but that's just a microcosm of the bigger portion of our life. How are we spending our life? This is what I know. In environments like this, when people like me, pastors, start to talk about money, everybody gets uncomfortable. Defenses start to go up in people's mind. They're just like, hey, preacher, none of your business. Stay in your lane. You don't need to talk to me about my money. And our defenses go up. I get that. In fact, at this Christmas stroll, I was there, and I had a bucket just like this, and I had candy canes in it, and I was actually handing out candy canes, but Cam, where's Cam, I saw Cam, right there, comes up to me, and he says, look, Pastor Bob's trying to take an offering at the stroll. <laughs> Sometimes I think we have that mindset that that's all that pastors think about. How do we get people's money? That's not what we're thinking about at all and especially not around here at our church. But we take the scriptures very, very seriously around here. We take the message of Jesus very, very seriously around here. And if we don't teach about what Jesus taught about generosity, we're gonna have to skip a major portion of the New Testament. It was something that he talked about over and over again. Why? Why do you think Jesus talked so much 
about money and generosity. Because I want to tell you, without a shadow of a doubt, God doesn't need your money. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't have a a cash flow problem that you're the only person on the whole planet that can solve that for him. He doesn't need your money. But there is something that he does want from you. He wants you. He wants every part of you. He wants your mind. He wants your emotions. He wants your will. He wants all of those things surrendered to him. What the Bible calls our heart. He wants your heart. And here's what the Bible tells us. Is that there is this strong connection between our heart and our money. A strong, strong connection. This is how Jesus said it very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. God's not after your money, he's after your heart. But he's trying to tell us that if you want to understand the things that are happening in your heart, follow the money. What are the things that your money goes to, your time goes to, your energy goes to? Those will tell you the things that you love, the things that you treasure, the things that you care about most. And I want to say, in the midst of this series, I just want to make sure that our cards are all face up. We've got no agenda with this series. Journey is not in some kind of a financial crisis And we're trying to get people to respond, to give us more money. In fact, the opposite is true. Journey is doing well financially, and we're grateful for that. This isn't reactionary in any way. And I want to say this. What I think we need to do as we talk about this topic of money is we need to create in this space what I want to call a guilt-free zone. Because sometimes when we talk about money, our emotional response can be guilt. I just feel guilty when they talk to me about this. No guilt in this room, none. Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross in our place to remove our guilt and shame forever. Why would we wanna do anything to try to heap that on one another? No guilt. But I do have one agenda. One thing that I want you to do as a result of this series, I want this series for you to create a conversation. Not a conversation between me and you, but a conversation between you and God. He's the one that knows your heart. He's the one that wants to direct your heart. There's a couple of tools I want you to think about during this series that will help you in this. I want you to think about a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? A thermometer just simply measures the environment around it. This is what I want you to do with a thermometer, a heart thermometer. I want you to, during this series, I want you to hold that up to God and just ask him the question, God, what is the temperature of my heart as it relates to generosity? On a scale of one to 10, is it a zero? Is it a 10? Is it somewhere in between? God, what is the temperature of my heart? And let him speak into that. Be honest with God about the state of your heart. But secondly, I want you to hold up another tool. This is a thermostat. Now, a thermostat doesn't measure the environment around it. A thermostat sets the environment around it. And I want you to, in the same way, hold that up to God and just say, God, would you put your hand 
on the thermometer of my heart and my life and begin to move that gauge in whatever way that you would want. We want to hear and respond to God around our generosity. God, what does it look like for me to be a generous person? We want to respond to him, not to me, not to your church. In this series, we've been looking at some unlikely heroes of generosity. The first week, Brian talked about a little boy that gave a little lunch that God did something amazing with, someone who gave a little. And then the next week, he talked about the Samaritan man. We called him Sam. He gave a little bit more. He went above and beyond what was expected of him. Today, we're gonna look at probably the poster child for unlikely, generous people. But when we look at this story, we're gonna say this is someone who gave a lot. Not just a little, not just a little more, but someone who gave a lot. And the big idea that this story is gonna teach us today is this. When grace flows into a heart, when the grace of God flows into a heart, generosity flows out. I wanna tell you the story about Zach. Luke 19, starting in verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass by. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus responded. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Zach, he was a tax collector. But not just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. You have to understand in the first century, if you wanted to pick the most hated and despised people, it was tax collectors. Why? What's the deal? We, we deal with the IRS. They might not be our favorite people, but why is there such disdain in this culture for tax collectors? See, at this point, Judea was ruled by Rome. And Rome, in order to be oppressive to the people, levied oppressive taxes upon them. It wasn't like they took just a little bit of their money. They took most of their money that made it very, very difficult for them to live. And this is who they hired to do their dirty work for them. 
They hired Jews that would collect taxes from other Jews. And these were the rules. There were quotas that these tax collectors were required, they were required to give to Rome. But if they were able to shake people down and get more than that, they could keep it. So there was great incentive to lie and to steal and to cheat because it made them incredibly wealthy. If there was ever a con artist in the first century, it was Zach. Somewhere along the line, Zach had made the decision, I don't care about people, I care about stuff. And I'm willing to sell my soul to get all the stuff that I can. Made him filthy, filthy rich. But it also made him guilty rich. You wonder sometimes when Zach was just laying in his bed at night thinking about his life if there was ever regret, ever wishing that he had never started down that road. I wonder if those were the things that maybe prompted him to want to move toward Jesus this day when he heard that Jesus was coming to his town. When Jesus came to Jericho, something in Zach stirred him to move toward Jesus. But as Jesus is coming by, Zach can't see. He's a little guy. He can't see over the crowd. Last night at the Christmas stroll, my daughter, who's on the high school dance team, was performing there in the street. And as they would get ready to perform, like the crowd would start to gather around them. And here's what would actually start to happen. As they were getting ready to perform, there would be people that would be shorter. They would just kind of move their way to the front. And nobody said anything about that because for me, like, why wouldn't I let somebody shorter than me ahead of me? Doesn't keep me from being able to see. And everyone just kind of moves in that direction until everybody can see. Nobody's making room for Zach. I mean, he's hoping and hopping, trying to see over the crowd. Nobody's letting him in. Just a picture of how despised he is by the rest of the crowd. Nobody's going to let him in. But he looks ahead and he thinks, this is where Jesus is going. I'm going to run on ahead. I'm going to climb up a tree just with the outside hope that I will get to see Jesus. Zach didn't realize on that day, Jesus was going to see him. Not just see him, really see him. See into the depths of who he was. Jesus saw him. And when Jesus saw him, really saw him, it changed his life forever. The story tells us that salvation came to his home. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this story because Luke doesn't give a ton of details, but the details he gives are incredibly important for us to understand the nature of salvation, even the order of salvation. I want to draw it out for you in a way that I hope will stick in your mind. This salvation story, it starts like all salvation stories, it starts with Jesus. And Jesus, he sees Zach. He sees Zach and he moves toward Zach. He moves toward Zach on this basis and only this basis, grace. 
grace. I mean, of all the houses that Jesus could have gone to that day, why did he choose one that was financed in the most illegitimate ways possible? Grace. Jesus moves toward people because of grace. What had Zach done up until that point to earn this favor of Jesus? What had he done? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And how do we know that it's grace? Jesus moves toward him in a powerful way that rocked the crowds around him. He said to Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. It didn't just mean I'm gonna show up for a meal. The rest of the crowd knew exactly what Jesus meant. For him to go to the house of Zacchaeus, to put his feet around the table with Zacchaeus, was Jesus saying to him, I'm with you. I accept you. I'm your people. And this is why the crowd just got livid. How can Jesus do this? How can he... Give that kind of acceptance to someone who has clearly, clearly not deserved it. Grace. And in verse 9, Jesus looks back. First he says to Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. And then he says what happened. He says salvation came to your house today. When Jesus shows up, there's salvation, there's acceptance, there's intimacy. Because of what? Grace. Jesus moved towards Zach in grace. And he used a term for Zach. He said, Zach is a true son of Abraham. And if you'd want to light up this crowd even more, use that term. Because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was referring back to the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. This covenant that God made with people, not because of anything that they'd done, but because of his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, his word, his character, his promise. Not based on their perfection, not based on anything that they had done. In fact, if you read the story of the nation of Israel, blowing it time after time, but they were the children of the promise. Grace. And so was Zacchaeus. Jesus had moved toward him in grace. And Zacchaeus knew it. And it started to change something inside of him. It started to change something inside of him. And we see that the response led Zacchaeus to generosity. Extreme generosity. But what happened in his heart? What was it that changed? Somehow he did a complete 180, where at one point in his life, he's like, I'm gonna use people to try to help my wealth. And then in a moment of grace, he says, I'm gonna help people by using my wealth. 180 degree change. What motivated this change? Gratitude. Gratefulness. For grace. When he came out of that tree, it said that he came out with great joy and excitement. This little bitty heart, this little bitty cold heart got bigger and bigger. This is like a Grinch that stole Christmas moment in Luke 19. His heart is getting bigger and bigger 
And the result was incredible generosity. This is what we've got to understand. It's when the grace of God finds its way into our hearts, like it did for Zacchaeus, that's what motivates us to generosity. We don't give to try to get something from God, to try to earn Jesus' favor. It is a response. Generosity, friends, is always a response. But I think about that crowd. I think about that crowd that was the picture of ungrace. It's not a word, but I'm making it up. Ungrace. These were the fans of Jesus, the ones that were pushing there, the fans of Jesus, but they didn't understand his message. His message and his mission was grace. The very end of this text, Jesus defines it. He says, the son of man, a term that Jesus used to describe him, the son of man came to seek and to save that which, that which was lost. This was his mission. And the people that were clapping along the sides missed it. They were pushing to the back someone that Jesus wanted to move toward because of grace. And when Zach experienced, actually experienced the grace of God, it led to this incredible generosity. I just love that picture. When grace walked in the front door of Zach's house, his greed walked out the back door. And his generosity was amazing. We've got to look at, Luke gives us the details of his generosity. We've got to try to understand that if we're going to understand the magnitude of what Zacchaeus did. The tithe. Brian has talked about the tithe, that 10%, that was kind of the idea of generosity within Judaism. This, what you give annually of your income to help others. Zacchaeus, what is his response? He just says, I'm going to give half, not 10%, 50%, extravagant giving. He gave a lot. And then he started to think about all those people he had swindled over time. If I had done that, he said, what I'm going to do is pay them 400%, four times. Now, the law would have required that he would pay back the money that he had taken from them wrongly, plus 20%. 20%, 400%. It's extravagant. When we talk about what does it look like to be a generous person in the New Testament, it's extravagant. It's sacrificial. If you're here today and you're just like, well, just tell me the bottom line. What is the bottom line number that I need to give to be acceptable to Jesus? It's the wrong question. And friends, you can scour the New Testament, but I don't think Jesus is going to answer it for you because his standard is generosity. The one thing that is true of generosity is that generosity, when it's actually lived out, is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It actually costs us something. I love the way Tim Keller said it. Actually, I don't like it because it's very convicting, but I think it's very, very true. He says, if your generosity doesn't change the way you live, it's not sacrificial and it's not generosity. Generosity, friends, changes the way we live. Do we give our time and our energy and our life in a way that it actually changes the way that we need to live? But when grace flows into our life, generosity 
flows out. And this story of Zacchaeus, like I said, this isn't just a a one-off story of generosity. This is the kind of thing we see over and over and over in the scriptures. Jesus tells the story of a woman who had an alabaster jar of perfume, a year's worth of wages, likely her dowry, likely her security in life, likely her inheritance. But what does she do when the grace of God When the grace of Jesus moves into her heart, she breaks the alabaster jar and she uses it to anoint Jesus. People around her are saying, that's stupid, that's crazy. You don't need to give that much. Jesus says, let her go. When grace moves into our heart, generosity flows out. We see a story in the New Testament of a woman that gave just two little coins, two tiny little coins, but it was all she had in the world. One of the greatest stories of generosity that we even have in the scriptures. And as the church starts, the church starts to move. We see these stories in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, where those that were involved in this movement of God in that place, those leaders, people that had resources, they would sell houses, they would sell land, and they would bring it to the feet of the apostles. And they would distribute it to everyone so that there was no needy people among them. Did they have to do that? No. But when grace enters our hearts, generosity flows out. Zacchaeus said yes to Jesus. Invited Jesus into his home. The question that I have for me, the question that I have for you is have you invited Jesus into your home? Have you invited him into your home? Now I'm not saying do you believe in him? I'm not saying have you prayed a prayer? I'm just saying is Jesus in your home in a way that he's, he's not just resident there but he is president there. That he is calling the shots in every area of your life. Your money, yes. But your time, your energy, your thought life, your sex life, every part of your life, is it under his lordship, under his kingship? Is Jesus in your home? What I love about this story of Zacchaeus is he had to get over some things to get to the place where Jesus came to his home. He had to get past the religious crowd. And friends, some of you need to get past the religious crowd too because there are religious crowds out there, people that don't understand the message and the mission of Jesus. And they're trying to push you to the back saying, you don't belong. You don't have what it takes. You don't deserve to be front row center with Jesus. He had to move past that. He had to climb up a tree. Can we just think for a minute what that was like for Zach to climb up a tree to see Jesus? Who climbs trees? Not wealthy men. Little kids. Little kids climb trees. But he was willing to lay aside his pride, even lay aside his dignity. I don't want you to think about this too much, but think about how he was dressed and what he needed to do to climb up that tree. Yeah. People maybe saw a little bit more of Zach than they wanted to see. 
that day. I see London, I see France, I see Zach's underpants. That's what kids in my middle school would have said. But Zach moved toward Jesus because Jesus wanted to come to his house. Friends, Jesus wants to come to your house. Not just to be a resident. Jesus comes to be president. Are you ready to invite him in? Are you ready to bring him front and center in your life? This is the invitation that Jesus gave to a church in the book of Revelation. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and, I will sh- and we will share a meal together as friends. Sometimes this is shared in the context of evangelism, but Jesus is speaking to a church here. But it's a church whose heart had grown cold. Their temperature was no longer white hot for the things of God. Thermometer was going down. But Jesus says, I want to come to your house. The story of Zacchaeus, I think, is just one of the most beautiful pictures of grace, one of the most beautiful pictures of the invitation of Jesus, the picture of the gospel, friends. Think about that scene when the crowds were grumbling and mumbling about Jesus going to Zach's house. Jesus took the disdain from the crowd in order to be with Zach. He was willing to lay aside his reputation to love Zach. What did he do for us? Friends, he laid aside way more than just his reputation. He laid aside his life for us. Those same crowds that were grumbling about Zach were gonna be the crowds that were gonna take Jesus and nail him to a tree. But Jesus says, I'm willing to do that so that I can come to your house. Maybe you're up in a tree today just like Zacchaeus. And Jesus' invitation to you would be the same. Come out of that tree. Leave your guilt, leave your shame behind. Come out of the tree and let me go back up on the tree for you. I will take your guilt. I will take your shame for you. The most beautiful picture of grace the world has ever seen. Are you ready to respond? Are you ready to respond to his grace? to invite Jesus into your house or maybe invite him in again if your heart has grown cold. I wanna just ask you to set your things aside and I just want you to go before the Lord and just ask, where am I at, Jesus, with you? What is the temperature of my heart toward you? with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed. I just want you to ask in your heart, is today your day? Is today your day that you bring Jesus to your home? Not just to be resident, but to be president, to have all authority over your life. If there's something stirring in you and you wanna do that, I'm just gonna pray a prayer and if that expresses the desire of your heart, just quietly, in the quietness of your heart, I want you to pray it along with me. 
Jesus, we need you. Jesus, I need your grace. Jesus, thank you that because of your grace, you were willing to move towards Zacchaeus. You're willing to move toward me. You're willing to invite me into your home. Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for me. Thank you that you paid the price that I deserve to pay. I deserve to be on that cross, Jesus, not you. Thank you that you did that for me. Today, Jesus, I just want to say, I put my faith and my trust in you and what you did on the cross for me. I want to repent of the life that I've been living. I want to move toward you, and I want to make you king over every part of my life. Jesus, I love you, and I trust you, and it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.